Hello, everyone. This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm Rafael Otto. Thank you for listening. You can catch us on 99.1 FM in the Portland Metro on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. Or tune in at your convenience wherever you find your podcasts, including iTunes, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And as always on our website at childinst.org. Today, I'm speaking with Representative Karen Power, a Democrat representing Milwaukee, Selwood, and Southeast Portland, who was elected in 2016, and Representative Jack Zika, Republican representing Redmond in Central Oregon, who was elected in 2018. Both have served on the House Committee on Early Childhood, Representative Power serving as chair and Representative Zika serving as vice chair. Both are retiring this year amid historic turnover in the legislature and will officially end their terms in January. And both have been early childhood champions, and we are grateful for their efforts over the years. Representative Power and Representative Zika, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you here today. Thanks. It's great to be here. Great to be here. Yes. So the first question I have for you is, why was early childhood a priority for you? Why is early childhood important to you personally? Representative Power, would you like to start? Well, I'm going to need Rep Zika to help me through this because I think we both connected on this shortly after COVID closures impacted us personally. And we saw how this was going to impact our communities personally and professionally. We are, I think, the only ones who, at least over the course of our terms, have had kids in daycare. Okay. So that was something we have, I mean, our kids have been running around our House of Representatives member lounge (laughs) since they were little. And the house floor. And the house floor. And when the world closed down so abruptly, it meant that we were both all of a sudden parenting full-time at home while also serving our communities and doing both our day jobs and our legislative work simultaneously. That's when we pivoted and saw that this was a gap that our colleagues were not going to be seeing because they were not living through it the way that we were. Right. Yeah. For me, similar story. We you know, my wife and I, we have two kids and, you know, we say childcare desert, which is, you know, you don't have enough spots for however many kids that need it. In Central Oregon, we were down to, there was only two spots for every 10 kids that needed it. So there's waiting lists. We're losing nurses at St. Charles that are moving to bigger markets so they can have childcare. You have long waiting lines and uh, the expense was 1200 at the time. Now it's close to 1500 per child. So you think that's like a small tuition payment. And so my wife decided to stay home and rather than go back to work after we had our second child, just because it was be home with the kids, it's more affordable. We can just make that work. So significant portion of the uh, workforce that's not going back to work just simply just because there's a, no child care available. And then when the pandemic happened, like Representative Power we was talking about, we had the CARES Act fund, which was about $70 million. And, and the Department of Early Learning, or I'm sorry, Early Learning Division, that was from the Department of Education. They they were they were struggling. They weren't being able to get out the money to save these childcare providers, and we had a lot of them that were closing down simply that because of how slow things were moving at that point in time. Because it was new for everybody. It's not the department's fault, but it's just at the time we didn't have the infrastructure in place. So Representative Power and I came together because we're both similar. We have kids, and we were going through the same thing. And we had our partners in our neighborhoods were shutting down. We had to fix it. We had to do something quick, and so we came up with the Early Childcare Caucus. And then we were able to get the speaker to get the committee running. And then from there, we got the department going. So 
it's been a long process, but we're a good team and we got things done for Oregon, which I'm very proud of. Say more about the establishment of the caucus and how that worked and why it was important for moving some of your agenda items forward. What did that look like? Our caucus was a good interim step until the reformation. We weren't sure if we were going to have a committee again. The early childhood committee existed a couple of years ago and then folded. It didn't have a lot of bills going on. And so they folded it into the House Education Committee. So other states have early childhood caucuses, which allow bicameral, bipartisan groups of legislators to come together and get updates on policy and investments, early learning in the full spectrum of, you know, what kind of partners exist in your state and what work are they already doing. And the emergency funds were a good first step. It did take months to get those out because the department is tiny and doesn't have a direct financial relationship with most of our childcare providers. That financial relationship largely exists in DHS. So we have sort of a current bifurcated agency structure, which is common. There's a lot of other states working to fix those silos and bring them together. But the caucus that Representative Zika and I established, we invited our colleagues to come talk about these issues. And they too were beginning to hear about the closures in their district or from family members whose childcare had closed and weren't able to find another one once things began to reopen in June uh, of 2020. So it was a good place for us to share knowledge and education. Yeah, it was absolutely just grabbing some of our caucus members and getting them together and make sure we had some on the Senate just so we could have both chambers represented and then both caucuses or both parties represented. And it came together pretty quickly. Once the word got out that we were starting to form this, we, we had quite a few members that were excited to join and it just steamrolled the whole thing, the whole process into the committee, which I think got the speaker's attention. So that's, I think, some of the reason why we got the committee back. You've both talked a little bit about your personal experiences, sort of the conditions that are impacting families with young children, the childcare desert issues, those kinds of things. What else are you hearing from your constituents? What do they want? What are parents with young children looking for in terms of early childhood systems or actions from the legislature? <laughs> Cheaper childcare <laughs> and more affordable childcare. That was the biggest one we were getting. Okay. I mean, and then the lack thereof, making it easier. And then you hear from providers that are saying that maybe there's too much red tape and there's too many things that they have to do. So providers were frustrated. Parents were frustrated because there are subsidies like employment-related daycare, which is huge. But a lot of our parents didn't know if they qualified for it. So you have all of these other programs, Baby Promise, Preschool Promise, you know, but it's very confusing. So the biggest thing that I was hearing was please bring it together in one place and so that we can access those and know what we qualify for, what is available. That was one of the biggest things that I was hearing. Yeah. Rep Power, how about you? Well, it's a lack of state investment and lack of federal investment. You know, most of the federal funds that we receive, we use to provide uh, subsidies to families for employment-related daycare. Speaking uh, of families, I mean... Mm -hmm. yep. See, it's very personal to both of us. So. Right, probably absolutely. Have time, so he's <laughs> and then Baby Promise uses contracted slots. And I think the, the general movement in the field and towards best practice in using contracted slots rather than having families have to go find somebody who will accept a subsidy. You know, I think what strikes me about where we are in this moment in 2022 is there is a complete, the lack of public investment has caused a complete breakdown in the industry. Uh, and yeah. I, I think we fought for and, and achieved some significant investments in the sector in the 2021 and 2022 legislative sessions. 
it's going to be a fraction of what we need in order to fully recover just back to where we were pre-pandemic at the point where it was a childcare desert in pretty much every county. Right now, there's almost no infant slots. I was just talking with somebody who is a CFO who would like to put their kid in childcare and they literally can't find any. So I think we're at a point where we know that it has always been unaffordable for most families with closures, with the fact that the sector doesn't even pay close to competitive wages, and yet it is wildly out of reach for most families. Daycare workers are going to other industries or other job professions where they can make more money. And so it's really hard for childcare providers to expand hours or expand classrooms because they can't find the staff or retain the staff. And there is no childcare for most people unless you're on wait lists months in advance. For example, the woman I was talking to lives in North Portland and it's not a matter of money. It's that they literally cannot find a spot. Uh, Right. And so the thing that I hear about is this is going to hold women back from recovering their participation in the workforce impacts probably lifelong earnings, social security earnings. And that's, been what has been top of mind for me as we've been working on this together. It's a family issue, but it's a professional stumbling block for most women looking to get back into work after having kids. Right. Disproportionately affects women over men. When we're talking about investment also, we had, in my district, at least we had a lot of businesses that wanted to invest in childcare and they wanted to bring childcare maybe in the business so they could just have their employees drop them off. But there's so much liability when it comes to that, that it was very, it was on, you're almost unable to ensure a daycare inside of a business, especially manufacturing. So what they tried to do was pull it with the chamber and come up with a way that they would do it. But it becomes very complicated and very convoluted that a business will just wash their hands of it and rather just give a little bit of money for investment for somebody to try to give them a discount on child care. So it's a very hard process to get businesses involved when it comes to that, just simply because of liability. So it's this constellation of things that we're keeping in mind, the impact of women in the workforce, the fact that wages are low for people who want to work in the childcare sector, just the lack of providers, the lack of facilities for childcare centers to open. It's a lot to manage. You said that public investment at the moment is a fraction of what we need. So what else do we need to keep in mind? If we are able to move the needle on increased public investment, where does it go? What are the priorities coming up in the short term? I would think infant care, because it's so hard to find that. That would should be a focus in the immediate term for me anyway. Rep Power, do you have thoughts on that? Infant care is the most expensive age group to care for because of the infant to staffing ratio requirements. As you could hear in the background, I have now an almost two-year-old and (laughs) you can't leave them unattended for a second. Right. Mine is apt to be drawing crayons in the walls. Where that crayon existed in my house, you know, I wouldn't know. Um, (laughs) I know that policymakers are moving towards a universal pre-K model, also recognizing that having play-based learning and getting kids ready for kindergarten is a huge help to that transition. But I think it comes down to getting more policymakers with small kids in elected roles because they're living through this. Many of our colleagues go, oh yeah, childcare was really expensive when I had kids. 20 years ago or 30 years ago or 40 years ago. Right. And it is a lot clearer when I say, you know, what we get paid as legislators in the interim 
is less than what I was paying for two kids in daycare. Sure. And I think that sort of jars a couple of our colleagues who remember it being expensive, but they don't realize how expensive it really is to provide high quality childcare. Right. If we have somewhere around 250,000 kids in Oregon who are under kindergarten age and we spend a couple hundred million dollars to support the sector and care. Mm-hmm. And otherwise it's families cobbling together care and affording it on their own. It just doesn't make sense why we don't do that. Right. And we have, you know, there's schools that are already established. So it's like we have infrastructure in place. We have boys and girls clubs that would love to have a program in elementary school. So, I mean, it's there, the want and the need. We can do that. It's just, it becomes very difficult legislatively for some reason to get these things through. What do you think it will take coming up to make sure that early childhood and these kind of priorities remain a priority for the legislature at large? We know there's a lot of turnover. There's going to be new legislators coming in to the session in 2023. What's it going to take for this to remain a priority for policymakers? Pressure from constituents. That's the biggest one. Yeah. Uh, I think you're seeing a lot of it right now, like through just like at the campaign aspect. Of course, I had small children, so it was easy for me to run on a platform saying that we need to improve child care. We need to improve because I had personal experience of that. You're starting to see a, a new class come in that's younger with some of these representatives that do have children. And then a lot of their constituents are having these issues. And so we're getting a lot of emails in regards to that. So I think you're going to see a lot of pressure and something's going to be done. And Representative Power alluded to the uh, universal preschool. That's real. So we have um, a federal investment possibly that could come in. So that it's just something that needs to be looked at. And I think it's becoming more and more important to our constituents. And I'm hoping <laughs> that there's more movement after we leave. So I think there will, though. I think so, too. Something that we began to see over the last two years was a number of businesses coming to testify or businesses reaching out for meetings with legislators about this. I know some major brand name Oregon companies that are beloved have made this a top issue of theirs. It's just, you know, we're at that space now where companies are trying to figure out what can they do to make childcare more accessible and more affordable for their employees. They see it as a critical issue that is keeping people coming back into the workforce or into the workplaces you know, the move back from a hybrid or at home model back into a hybrid in the office model is not possible if, you know, your childcare has closed in the interim nearby and you've been piecing together, you know, one person covering the kids during these hours and somebody splitting work hours. So that's really encouraging to me. I think we need some of our business associations leaning into making this a top priority. I know yesterday Business Oregon released its economic roadmap and I identified issues that the state will need to tackle in recovering from the pandemic. And childcare was uh, in the executive summary, I think it's one of the 10 or so items identified by businesses as an issue. Yeah. Yeah. yeah there, there's real momentum going from the governor's office to the speaker. They've identified that even with the pandemic response, we had money for childcare. So I think this is becoming more and more of a priority issue for the the legislative and executive branch. Do you feel like the effort to have universal preschool in Multnomah County is is a model to draw off of? Do you think there is potential to have that expand throughout the state or maybe not in the exact same way, but in a similar way, is that a model for other counties? 
I know we were hoping to hear an update from them during legislative days this week. And I think the person we were supposed to hear with was unavailable and had a conflict at the last minute. You know, not every city in Oregon is going to approve the kind of tax rate or approach that Multnomah County voters approved. Washington and Clackamas are also looking at it. But I think from an approach perspective, Multnomah County is identifying a mixed delivery system, which is terrific, and starting with the kids least likely to access affordable childcare to make sure that they get priority spots. I think those investments in our families are going to pay dividends over the lifetime of the kids' family and the parents. When we had them come and talk with us in committee a couple months back, all of the the issues we were just talking about a couple minutes ago are front and center for them. It's the difficulty in finding facilities. So they're investing in small business owners to help them grow. It's a labor-intensive process to scale childcare. And so it's definitely not an overnight fix, even with significant investment. It's going to take time to recruit and retain providers and help them provide high-quality care and helping families connect with providers. Repsika, thoughts on that? Because I say, as soon as you say Multnomah County, you're going to have the east side of the state just immediately shut down yeah. because there is a divide, east-west divide between the state. And so typically if something comes from Portland, if they feel like they're, <laughs> it's kind of not going to be the best thing for us. But what, what's the solution look like east of the Cascades? Well, there's pockets. So we have Bend and we have Redmond in Deschutes County. So central Oregon is looking a little bit more deeper into this because we have the chamber, which represents all the businesses in central Oregon. And they've been spearheading some of these childcare efforts to try to pool together businesses and resources so they could have a shared model for childcare. So I think that's a good start for our side of the state. But universal pre-K, like I said, would take investment. Typically, when you say that, it perks everybody's ears because that means higher taxes. And typically, the higher taxes is going to come off of businesses. And so with the corporate activities tax that just happened for our um, education and then students, it's something that would be a hard fight. And I don't know if they're ready for it Yeah, on this side of state. Let's see what happens with Multnomah County. Let's see the benefits of it. They are very early days. And the last update we got was at the end of the session and it sounded like they were just getting started. And so we'd really need to see the cost benefit structure of that model before trying to pitch that to other counties in the state. Makes sense. But I think it's a good start and they opened the door a bit. They cracked it open. So let's see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I wanted to ask, what advice do you have for incoming legislators? <laughs> oh boy. It's so hard when you first come in because there are so many questions that you have, but then there's also so many things that you didn't even know that you needed to have questions for. You know, <laughs> there's so many skeletons in the closet that you don't even start to figure out until you're in your second year. The best piece of advice I had was from Senator Courtney on our orientation that said, remember how you got here. You didn't get here by yourself, but you can leave here by yourself. And so that I, it really meant a lot to me thinking that, you know, it really takes everybody around you. It really takes, you know, support from your fellow representatives, from your family, most importantly, your family. So don't miss birthdays. Don't miss anniversaries it's tough. Like this is very time consuming. And if you work a hundred hours, it'll take a hundred hours, you know? Yeah. So it's like, you can go in at six in the morning and leave at 11 o'clock at night. I've done that during sessions. So it's, it's a very tough job at sometimes, <laughs> but very rewarding at the same time. This is the best and worst job I've ever had. It's a roller coaster for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Rip power. 
What's your advice? If you care about something, find somebody who's likely already working on it and ask what you can do to help. I learned a lot from helping more senior legislators with either research or running down some questions. There's a lot of process around policymaking or executing on things the legislature has passed with agencies, which is really more of our work, I think. As senior legislators now, you know, I feel like most of my work has shifted to following up on things that we pass already and helping make sure that they're being executed the way that we intended rather than passing new policy. Right. You know, it was a great learning curve when I was a freshman legislator getting to collaborate with stakeholders and some other legislators. And oh, one of the things I found the most valuable was meeting with everybody, all my fellow legislators on each of my committees. Asked for, you know, 30 minutes or 15 minutes with each of the Republicans and Democrats so I could get to know their district and how they arrived there. And a lot of this is done. You know, it used to be done over lunch sometimes, or we catch each other in, in the hallway and yeah. understanding where districts are coming from on issues and, you know, how we each got there is really important in the process of policymaking. Right. Yeah, they really do need to open the House Lounge again because we would debate fiercely on the floor. And as a freshman, you're like all worked up. And how can I talk to these people after this? I can't believe this just happened. And then you go upstairs in the House Lounge and we're all talking and joking around and talking about our bills and talking about our families and, and a few legislators cracking jokes. And it's a whole different atmosphere. And then within the last session and the pandemic, they closed the lounge and they closed the hallways basically so people couldn't come in. So you don't have those side conversations. You learn more about a bill walking in the hallway next to Betsy Johnson on the way to your committee than you would <laughs> lobbying the whole, the other side of the, the building. So you miss those. So that I hope for their sake is open and I hope the building stays open and we don't have another pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. Are there other accomplishments that you want to talk about in terms of your time in the legislature? What else do you want us to know about? What else are you proud of? I did a lot of things in housing. So yeah, I'm very proud of that. You know, we did affordable housing is a big deal in central Oregon. You know, we're in Bend, it's over $700,000 for the median house price. So if you work in Bend, you're not living in Bend anymore. So that was, you know, it's a big deal. And when you go knock on doors and campaign, everybody's concerned about housing prices. And if you're older and your kids are growing up, you're worried that your kids aren't going to be able to afford to live there. So one of the things that we were able to do was bring affordable housing, got a lot of money for Habitat to build some housing units. We got pilot projects in Redmond for affordable housing, over 500 of those. And they'll be at 80% of AMI deed restrictions. So they'll continuously be affordable. We made it harder for them to foreclose on veterans, making sure we had more resources for there to get them before they get become homeless. There was $200 million in the landlord compensation fund during the pandemic that I worked on on that to get that done. There's a lot of things with housing that we were able to accomplish in the last four years. Great, great. Uh, Rep Power? I think one of the things I'll be most proud of is our energy affordability bill that we passed that's going to create lower rates, lower energy rates for low-income families, which we had to approve via legislation, unlike water and sewer bills, usually your community provide a subsidy or differentiate rates, something like a quarter of Oregonians struggle to afford their energy bill. So I was really glad that we finished that. And I think it is currently just going to affect. We did a lot of work around clean energy pre-pandemic. We were doing a lot of work on water infrastructure in the state. And then we made some significant investments in 
canals and irrigation and other public water systems. Again, something that I wish we had more federal investments coming down from because it's old and expensive to maintain for some of our most rural communities. You always learn something new doing this job every day. Yeah. You know, somebody comes in who's an expert on something and you get to learn about an issue you hadn't even considered before. I think I will also forever be really proud of the work that we're teeing up around early education and early childhood. And I'm stubbornly optimistic that at some point, some policymakers at the federal level are going to decide to make some investments here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's hoping we see that as well. With your term ending in January, I'll start with you, Rep Power. What's left for you to do in this period from now until your term ends? Continuing to do constituent work, making sure that my staff land in good positions after their work with my office wraps up. Me working with my successor to help them understand how legislation works and get a little bit of onboarding. And there were some bills that I was working on to introduce next year before I made the decision not to run again. So I'm working on helping to lead some stakeholder groups and then hand those off to a colleague or two. Rep Zika? I think we have to keep the department's feet to the fire for this Department of Early Learning and Care for this next year to try and make sure they make all of their deadlines, timelines. That's something that we're uh, working on. There's a lot of constituent work that's still going on, ongoing with unemployment issues or housing issues and tenant landlord things. So there's a lot of that we're working through. They've got me on task force for some reason. And <laughs> <laughs> so there's this bill with our uh, community action agencies that's still ongoing. It's a uh, House Bill 2100. There's a task force on that to try to restructure that to get more funds out to people that need it the most. So there's that. I have those. And uh, underrepresented students, there's a task force for that. So they're doing tours for the colleges. So there's ongoing work. And then, yes, of course, whoever gets elected to try to help them out the best I can through the constituent work and let them know what I've already done and, and try to push them in that direction. You know, a lot of the other pieces and policy things that you've talked about, housing, climate, energy, those kinds of things, people don't often think of those as issues that are early childhood issues, but they are things that impact children and families. And so I think it's useful to think about them as all connected. What I want to ask is your thoughts on what a thriving early childhood system really will look like once we get to that place. It's kind of a look ahead into the future. And could you give us what that looks like in maybe a sentence or two sentences. Rep Zika, can I start with you? I think it's support from the state. You have to have a partner, not an agency that you go and you think you're going to get fined or something like that. We really need to have a supportive structure and not just for daycare centers, but for in-home daycare. And we lost so many in-home daycare providers and they provide so much daycare because how does it start? You start as a neighbor and you're just watching kids and then you need to grow your business and you find out that there's all these regulations, licensing requirements, which, you know, we want to protect our kids, but we need a support. We need a partner. And I think the state needs to be that partner. Rep Power? I think about it as both the provider and the family perspective. As a parent, I think about how many hours I spent visiting daycares and researching daycares and asking friends for the recommendation on daycares and how difficult, how time intensive that is and how inaccessible like that process is alone for people who don't have that kind of time to devote to researching their community. So I don't know if the state is the best venue for that sort of 
screening function, but in a perfect world, you'd have some place much like you do your school districts where you can go and see what is available in your, your geographic area. And from there, be able to see what languages do they speak? How many kids are in their care? You know, how are they rated? How expensive is it? Yeah. What's your deposit going to look like? <laughs> and from there on the provider side, being able to rely on steady payment for the work that you're doing, knowing that families often have to make childcare placement decision based on where they work or their car situation. So a better backend contracting system with providers who are accepting state subsidies or local subsidies where it is financially easier for them than it is right now to make ends meet and get paid for the essential work that they do. My last question for you is, will we see you active again in politics? Or as early childhood advocates, or as both. Rep Zika, what do you think? You never know. You never know. <laughs> I, I told my wife that I'm at least taking two years off from politics because 2020 was a rough year. I had my daughter hanging on my leg saying I was ever home at one point. So I was just like, all right, I need to slow down and I need to focus on my family for a little bit. But you never know what the future holds. And yes, I'd like to continue on and be an advocate for child care. Absolutely. It's been a great ride and I'm going to miss it. But at the same time, I need to be with my family. And I, I don't want to be the absent father that I felt like I was starting to turn into. So appreciate that. Makes sense. Rep Power, how about you? I think on our way out, I've been missing all the best things about it and not missing the grueling sort of campaign work that so many of our colleagues run and how time consuming that is on top of being a legislator at the same time. And I can't envision myself not being engaged in childcare somehow. I think both of us will be a resource for our next colleagues leading on this work. And I've formed so many great friendships with advocates in this space. It permeates everything. Whatever I end up doing next, it will be relevant to that sector because it is a crisis facing our entire state and facing the nation. So I'm um, looking forward to engaging. And again, like Representative Zika said, also getting to spend a little bit more time with my kids while they're little. It's a very time-intensive job. Requires big sacrifices on your family, and I know that I couldn't have done it without my wife. But she's also very grateful that I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I was very grateful that I got to work with Karin on this. It was a lot of fun, and we worked really well together. The only thing that I wish I could have done is I wish we could have been on energy and environment at the same time, because I think the debates would have been pretty epic. I would have loved to debate you on something that maybe we don't agree on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you both for coming on the podcast today and thank you for your service as policymakers and leaders in our state. We look forward to seeing what happens next for both of you, even if there's a little bit of time. If you're taking a break, we'll see what happens for you in a year or two. But thanks again for coming on. It's been great to speak with you today. You too. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. This show is brought to you by Children's Institute. We're at work transforming early learning and healthy development for young children and their families in Oregon. Tune in on 99.1 FM on Sundays at 4.30 p.m. or stream these segments wherever you find your podcasts. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org. Pay us a visit, sign up for our newsletter, or connect with us on social media. 
Thanks for listening.